From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. The radio, model name Juliet, was about the size of an iPhone 5. ReSound is a remix of audio stories, music, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. Today, a dog, a dilemma, and a 700-foot mountain of whipped cream. Where else have you heard that? Dog lovers know that our beloved canines are extremely emotional animals. On the upside, they seem to sense when we're feeling sad or anxious and cuddle up to us with compassion, love, and bad breath. On the downside, they, like us, can be stubborn, moody, neurotic, and confoundingly hard to figure out. When Australian producer Natalie Kestitcher's life went veering off course, she tried to get things back on track through companionship. Her new friend had four paws, a wet nose, and a lot of drool. First, there was the all-staff meeting. Moving forward, our CEO said, we're going to have to leave some things behind. We looked at each other nervously and hoped we wouldn't be the things that would have to be left behind. And then came the one-on-one meetings. Moving forward, there was that phrase again, we're going to have to leave some things that we really care about behind. It's not you, they said, so please don't take it personally. But we're making you redundant. Bassie found herself in a similar situation when her family surrendered her. Like my former employer, her owner felt she couldn't move forward with Bassie around. She packed up her things, her toys and her bed and her blankie and her favourite food, and left her with her new foster mother, me. I'd never before volunteered to do such a thing. It wasn't altruism. I hoped this new role would give me a sense of purpose. Bessie, come inside. Come on. Come inside. I, the redundant human, and Bessie, the redundant dog. How about a game? Look. We checked each other out. We smelt rejection and fear on each other. We had no idea what our new lives would bring. (sighs) Bessie! Bessie! Stop barking! After a night of barking and peeing on carpets, I understood why this dog had been surrendered. A peaceful life was impossible with Bassie around. She barked and howled and complained and demanded. She dug holes, destroyed carpet, and she stank. You have to understand that this dog doesn't realise that she's putting you off. This is Carol, the dog trainer. Well, she just figures that she'd been abandoned before, so if she wants to keep you, she's going to have to even do more of what she did before. More barking and more jumping. She's feeling quite desperate. Imagine you'd been abandoned by your pack. In some ways, I understood this. I too had attempted to be a caricature of myself after being advised of my redundancy just to show them they'd made a terrible mistake and they'd miss me. 
But then it finally sank in, that they wanted less of me, not more of me. If only I could explain to the dog that the less of herself she was, the more I would be inclined to tolerate her. If she is barking when you're at home, you must not respond. If necessary, go to another room, or better still, put her in another room. And after a minute or so, you can let her back. But if she starts barking again, just repeat the whole process. She'll learn that this is not the way to impress you. But perhaps the dog wasn't trying to impress me. I could tell she thought I lacked energy and games and leadership skills. She didn't consider me a team player and she couldn't understand why I wasn't taking advantage of my new situation. You have all this free time now, Bassie said with her eyes. And look how you're wasting it. You used to complain about deadlines and stress and open plan offices and hot desking. And here you are with all this time on your hands. And how do you spend it? You could be out in the fresh air, socialising with a more interesting pack, creating new opportunities for yourself and me. But what do you do? Complain, whinge, sleep in. I often see you chasing your tail. And you know what dog psychologists say about animals who do that? It was clear that both Bassie and I thought each other losers. As the weeks went by, things deteriorated between Bassie and me. I really wasn't coping. Clip her and then I'll drag her. Bassie, come on. My partner, a full-time worker, took over dog walking duties. He'd rise at 4.30am in order to walk her before his long day at the office. And at night he'd walk her again and attempt to teach her manners. This was unfair, but there was nothing I could do. I was listless and unmotivated and the dog wouldn't listen to me. She listened to my partner, but he simply wasn't round enough to compensate for her behaviour the rest of the time. Come on, inside, Bess. Ciao. Bye. So, have you heard of Kintsugi? My therapist asks when I tell her about the unwanted dog. I'm assuming she's referring to a kind of sedative that may help me deal with Bassi. Kintsugi is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery. It involves taking the broken fragments of an object and putting them back together and making a more beautiful whole. It's a tradition with a lot to teach us about how to repair the broken bits of ourselves. Are you calling the dog a broken object, I ask? She doesn't answer, but from the way she looks at me, I realise that she's talking about me. And I say, maybe redundancy broke me. And she says... Well, yes, it did. But what am I going to do with the dog? I'm a volunteer foster carer. I can't abandon her. Well, you can give her back to the rescue agency. Just say you're not up to it. And put yourself back together. All I really wanted was some peace and quiet and some time to recover and lick my own wounds. It was true, the redundancy really had shattered me. 
but the dog's life had also been shattered and I felt like a monster. I'd used her to try and give my new life meaning and had failed. Bassie was a redundant dog and she only knew how to be herself and mourn and grieve and bark and howl and demand that I stay by her side. How could I give away such a broken creature? When you can't take any more When you feel your life is over Put down your tablets and pick up your pen And I'll put you together again This should be a story about how I came to love a broken dog. A story about kintsugi, the art of mending something broken. A story about how I learned to love a dog that was impossible to love. A story about how beautiful she became as a result of my love. I wish this was that story, but it isn't. It's a story about my failure to even be a foster parent to a dog. I wasn't sure how I was going to explain this to the rescue agency, let alone to Bassie. So I resorted to the script that had been read to me when I was told it was all over. I said, moving forward means leaving some things behind. It's not you, so please don't take it personally. Bassie rested her head in the crook of my arm as we waited for her new foster mother to collect her. She was quieter than I'd ever seen her. Maybe she realised that moving forward, she could do better herself. It was time to go. Without a word, she jumped in the back of her new mother's car. She didn't look back. Kintsugi Dog was produced by Natalie Kestacher for Shortcuts from BBC Radio 4. This story always breaks my heart, while at the same time filling it with joy. Natalie's work has a way of doing that, and as a result, we've played a lot of it over the years. To treat yourself and listen to more of it, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. Clive Desmond has had a lifelong love affair with the radio, but not in the way most people do. He didn't listen late at night for The Shadow or The Lone Ranger. He was mesmerized by the glue that held those programs together, the bread and butter of any commercial radio station, the ads. So you should never put bananas in the refrigerator. Join us on Clive's private tour as he takes us on a meditative journey in which each jingle becomes a Proustian Madeleine. was spring of 1957. I was the sole tenant 
of the womb of an unidentified woman. I spent my days floating pleasurably in silence and sometimes swimming. On the third day of the seventh month, I began hearing strange noises. Listen. I didn't know what the noises were. My advice is Susie. You like this brand new kind of lather, so be choosy. But I would Want soon enough. Once I was born, my family moved to a bungalow in Buffalo. There was a beautiful radio in the kitchen. It was always on. And that's when I began listening. My favorite station was WKBW. It was a top 40 station, so there were three or four commercials between every song. Listening as intensely as I did, I soon discovered that all radio commercials weren't the same. They were like pasta. They came in different shapes. There were monologue commercials, dialogue commercials, interview commercials, musical commercials. But even to my tiny, tender ears, I noticed all commercials had one thing in common, a certain lack of authenticity. The radio voices spoke with a cheery, make-believe tone, one that said, It's going to be wonderful. Everything's great. This was a tone I had never heard real people speak in, except for one of our neighbors, Mrs. Cunningham. She was an optimist. But then one day, when I least expected, I heard a radio commercial that featured a little girl. Marcia, what's your opinion of all the vitamins and minerals in Bosco? I never saw them. Well, you can't see them, but they're there. It says so right there on the label. I don't know how to read yet. I'm only four. Oh, I'm sorry, Marcia. That's okay. Anyway, I don't care about vitamins and things. I just like Bosco because it uh, makes my milk taste so good. What does it taste like? Like milk with chocolate in it. I don't like milk without it. Well, Bosco's good for you. I know. My mother thinks I like Bosco because of the vitamins. But I just like it because it tastes good. Looks like you fooled her. Mothers are smart. But kids are smarter. This little girl's voice had a powerful effect on me because she sounded as real as the girl who lived in the bungalow next door to us. A few days later, sitting in the back seat of the family car, we drove past WKBW in downtown Buffalo. I peered out the window at the station and wondered if the Bosco syrup girl lived there. I mean, how else could the girl in the commercial be on the radio like that all the time? I hadn't yet learned about the wonders of the tape recorder. While I sat in the car, pondering the whereabouts of the Bosco Syrup Girl, 375 miles to the south in New York City was the man who made the Bosco Syrup radio commercial. His name was Tony Schwartz. He was a radio producer and audio archivist. Tony Schwartz specialized in recording commercials with real people instead of recording actors trying to portray real people. Which meant the Bosco Syrup Girl was a real child and not a 35-year-old actor playing a child. Schwartz's production philosophy 
was to avoid the use of any music or unnecessary sound effects. And when he did work with actors, Schwartz directed them not to sound like actors. In this way, Tony Schwartz was radio advertising's first modernist. A fire breaks out on the first floor of a two-family house. Door. The woman quickly leaves to call the fire department. Door. And two people die upstairs, overcome by smoke. Door. A man smoking in bed starts a fire. The door. Leaves the bedroom, rushes to a phone. The door. And before the fire department gets there. The door. The rest of his house burns down. The door. Is there one single act that could have been done Close the door. to help prevent this needless loss of life and property? Close the door. What should these people have done? Close the door. Do you know that a door is one of the best pieces of firefighting and life-saving equipment? Close the door. And if you leave a room that is on fire, close the door. If you simply close the door, close the door. It will help stop the fire and smoke from spreading too quickly. Close the door. This life-saving information is brought to you by this station and the New York City Fire Department. After I turned nine, every summer, I was ritually shipped to California to spend time with my cousins in San Francisco. Like most children, I was fond of Saturday morning cartoons. The more cartoons I watched, the more familiar I became with the characters. And the more familiar I became with the characters, Bugs, Popeye, Bullwinkle, the more I took notice of their specific voices. But there was one voice I liked most, perhaps because he sounded so uncartoon-like. You may know him as Pete Puma, Junior Bear, or Jiminy Lummox. He appeared in Sylvester and Tweety, The Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Hour, Ren and Stimpy, Stuart Little, and I Go Pogo, among hundreds of other shows. But when I was a boy, he was in radio commercials too. His name was Stan Freeberg. Announcing the 1966 Chun King. Sleek, arrogant, a different breed of chow mein. You see it instantly in its bold new bean sprouts, its crisp, aggressive water chestnuts. Talk about extras. You want bucket bamboo shoots? Power onions? You got it, mister, in the 1966 Chungking Chow Mein. Outside, too, you'll notice the revolutionary styling of its round cans right away. Wraparound labels, more pickup in the two cans taped together. That's standard equipment on this baby. Look at the way she handles. In the bottom can, independent vegetable suspension. And in the top can, where the action is, over 27 cubic inches of succulent Chungking sauce, loaded with high-performance chicken. Step up to the tuned chow mein, the 1966 Chun King. Noodles optional. I didn't know who Stan Freeberg was or how big a role he would play in the evolution of sound for radio commercials. But whenever I heard his voice, it got my attention. One night, driving over the Golden Gate Bridge with my Uncle Owen, Stan Freeberg's voice popped out of the speaker. Stunned, I asked my uncle, could you uh, turn that up? Radio? Why should I advertise on radio? There's nothing to look at, no pictures. Listen, you can do things on radio you couldn't possibly do on TV. That'll be the day. All right, watch this. 
Okay, people, and now when I give you the cue, I want the 700-foot mountain of whipped cream to roll into Lake Michigan, which has been drained and filled with hot chocolate. Then the Royal Canadian Air Force will fly overhead towing a 10-ton maraschino cherry, which will be dropped into the whipped cream for the cheering of 25,000 extras. All right, cue them out. cheering extras. Now, you want to try that on television? Well... You see, radio is a very special medium because it stretches the imagination. Doesn't television stretch the imagination? Up to 21 inches, yes. Who Listens to Radio was part of an advocacy campaign sponsored by the Radio Advertising Bureau of America to encourage clients to buy more radio time. Apparently, radio was going through a sales drought. Nevertheless, Stan Freeberg was the main voice of this epic radio commercial, and that's what caught my attention. Hearing Freeberg command a 700-foot mountain of whipped cream being rolled into Lake Michigan, while the Royal Canadian Air Force towed a giant maraschino through the sky, it flipped a switch in my imagination as nothing had before. This was bigger than the Bosco chocolate syrup girl, although in hindsight, she was still pretty good. To a nine-year-old, two weeks feels like a year. And that was more than enough time for me to untether myself from the familiar sounds of Buffalo and absorb the subtly different tone and tempo of California. California. Mm. Two weeks on the West Coast had cleared my mind and readied me for the next phase in my radio commercial journey. After my vacation ended, I was sent home to Buffalo via the scenic route. I spent most of my time in the observation car with the new transistor radio my Uncle Owen had given me as a going away present. The radio, model name Juliet, was about the size of an iPhone 5. It was an inch deep and came with a leather cover as soft as a lamb's ear. But of most importance, it had an earplug. The earplug looked like a piece of outmoded technology from the Balkan Wars, brown and round as a walnut, attached to the radio by a coiled wire. Listening with the earplug was a new experience for me. It was like being in a radio cocoon. Station after station, commercial after commercial, I slowly began to overdose. Then I made a disturbing discovery. The more I listened, the more I recognized the sameness of all the stations and commercials. After hours in this echo chamber, I grew bored. I wanted to hear something new or something different. Two days later, after passing through the American heartland, the train had a one-hour layover in Chicago. My plan was to stay on the train, listen to the ball game, and read The Amazing Spider-Man number 38. During the first inning, I fell asleep and had a dream. A weird kind of dream, 
You could call it a radio dream. And now, the dream. I am in Chicago. I leave my train seat and go outside. Next, I am walking through a secret tunnel. But I had to be careful, because it was dark. The tunnel led to a theater. Suddenly, the footlights come on, and a lanky man in a black suit walks up a few steps onto the stage. He unfolds a greasy sheaf of papers and starts to read. A small jazz band gets to work behind him. I want you to know that I love my baby, and my baby loves me. A short time ago, we went out together to a place called Far Out, up the limbo. The rhythm was there. I reached over and held my baby's hand. She gave me a little squeeze. I knew we were in the same key. Everything's beginning to swing in a quiet Years later, I would learn that this combination of writing and music was called word jazz. And the pioneer who created it was a man called Ken Nordine. Then I heard a train whistle. And I woke up. And I snapped back into reality. In the beginning, Nordine was simply a writer and a performer with a lot to say. To supplement his meager income, he began making radio commercials in the word jazz style. As we pulled out of Chicago, an Ordeen commercial played over my Juliet radio earphone. It was as though the heavens had opened and I heeded the voice of all that could be. Think with your tongue about lemon. From the first smack, your tongue can tell that lemon is something else. Something so subtly obvious by a something so obviously subtle. Yet, there was a feeling among yesterday's tongues that the something else that is lemon wasn't getting its just desserts. But that was before the Sheriff Flavor Bud. Nothing secret about Flavor Bud, except it gives you a perfect lemon jelly dessert every time. Best thing that's happened to lemons since trees. Best thing that's happened for tongues since please. Flavor Bud is what makes this lemon so lemony lemon. Reward your family with the Sheriff Jelly Dessert marked Lemon. As any honest tongue will tell you, not all jellies are created equal, so ask for Sheriff Jelly Dessert. This time, Lemon. The Lemon Dessert radio spot was like nothing I'd ever heard, but it was just what I'd been searching for. Nordine had created something fresh, and it seemingly came from out of nowhere. I loved it, but I didn't have much hope that anything else like this would be coming down the line. Perhaps I was too young to see that Nordine was a harbinger of things to come. On the last Friday of the summer of 66, I arrived in Buffalo. But I wouldn't be there long because that night at dinner, my father announced the family was moving to Toronto. As long as I had my comics, my Juliet radio, and uninterrupted access to my favorite Buffalo media, 
The move to Toronto meant little to me. Heck, I thought, it may even be a good thing. As a child growing up in the 60s, I can't say I love jingles. In the 60s, all the jingles I heard were reiterations of jingles from the past. Sure, they were as cute as a basket of puppies, but for the most part, nothing more than tuneless, mindless junk. That was until the summer of 1967, when some very strange things began to happen in the universe of the lowly jingle. In 1967, the Beatles' record, Sgt. Pepper, had just come out, and popular music suffered a massive disruption. With its sitars, hornyard sounds, and allusions to Lewis Carroll and Stockhausen, Sgt. Pepper landed with a bang. And so big was the bang, Sgt. Pepper sent jingle producers on a mad scramble to copy the new sound any which way they could. One of our neighbors, a jingle producer named Mort Ross went berserk. At a barbecue one night, I remember Mort telling my mother, this is the biggest thing ever. What am I gonna do? How can I compete with the goddamn Beatles? My mother looked solemnly at her freshly manicured fingernails and said nothing. The Beatles, of course, had always been badgered to endorse products, but being the Beatles, it was not to be. However, if the Beatles wouldn't make a jingle, there were plenty of musicians who would. Still giddy from the success of their single, White Rabbit, the Jefferson Aeroplane accepted an invitation to make a jingle. The invitation came by way of Levi Strauss, the clothing company, who were anxious to draw attention to their line of white jeans. It may take a second or two to grasp what you are about to hear, but it's a jingle all right. A summer of love jingle. Listen to the way Grace Slick summons the spirit from a pair of white jeans. Now, Jefferson Airplane. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, the strangest jingle to come out of the period was a spot for Remington Electric Razors. It was produced by Frank Zappa. Teaming up with then unknown singer Linda Ronstadt, Zappa produced one of the most magnificently odd jingles in the history of radio. Can you think of a better gift than something that helps a guy look good and feel good every single day of the year? Can you? Thank you. 
thrills you, may even keep you from getting busted. Of course, senior management at Remington rejected Zappa's jingle. I don't know why, because Zappa's jingle is a one-of-a-kind creation. To be honest, it's as strange as shaving itself. Over the next three years, I adjusted to my new life in the Dominion of Canada. I went to school, stumbled through the nuances of Canadian English. And because Buffalo was only 35 miles south of Toronto, across Lake Ontario, I could still pick up my favorite Buffalo stations while exploring all the radio Toronto had to offer. Chum, CBC, CFRB, the list went on. By divine intervention, my father, a gadget freak, acquired an enormous Sony two-track reel-to-reel tape recorder on which I learned to record and edit. When I was 12, my voice began to break, and I saw my future. I was going to become a voiceover actor in radio commercials, and maybe, if I was lucky, I'd be on TV commercials too. One step at a time, I warned myself. One step at a time. My voiceover nom de plume was Chris Christensen. Reading into the Sony tape recorder as Chris, I practiced every day. I read copy from a magazine ad to make my first radio commercial. It was an experience in humility. Take one. A lot of cigarettes promise taste, but for me, only one cigarette delivers, and that's the row. Take two. A lot of cigarettes... In seventh grade, I had a friend who intentionally dressed and wore his hair to look like Andy Warhol. His name was Taylor Reed. Taylor's father, Mr. Reed, was an account executive at the ad firm McCann Erickson. McCann Erickson's biggest client was Coca-Cola. On weekends, when Taylor's dad had custody of Taylor, I would often tag along, and the three of us would hang out at Mr. Reed's office at McCann. One Sunday in February, Mr. Reed took us into the boardroom. We sat down and he explained he had a top-secret radio project to show us, and he wanted our opinion. Then he pressed a button. The curtains closed. The lights went down. We sat in the dark and waited. And then a voice of such angelic purity pierced through the silence, and the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me.
After the new Coke jingle played, Mr. Reed said, So what do you boys think? We gave it thumbs up, and boy, were we right. The simple words and melody of the new Coke jingle suggested that the clearest path to utopia was through the mouth of a Coke bottle. Still, preposterous or not, to this day, I'd Like to Buy the World a Coke remains one of the most popular jingles in the history of radio. When FM radio came on the scene, I put my Juliet portable transistor radio in retirement and acquired a new portable Panasonic radio with AM-FM reception and stereo earplugs. The new radio was smaller than a paperback, yet bigger than the Juliet. Every Saturday and Sunday night, I would lie on my bed in the dark and toggle across the frequency band of my Panasonic in search of new things to hear. At that time, I was very excited that I had discovered the concept of irony. I was always on the outlook for tiny ironic moments to test my new capacity for irony detection. My solitary weekend listening parties typically went something like this. Saturday night, 10 p.m., WGR Radio, Buffalo, tuned into Larry King. Topic, the Vietnam War with actor Jane Fonda. He'll always be part of you. Always. But so will Tom Hayden, and so would Vadim, except he died. Memorable moment? An Army recruitment ad produced by Ken Nordine, yes, the same word jazz Ken Nordine I'd heard in Chicago, played right after Jane delivered a rousing speech about the hypocrisy and evil of the military-industrial complex. Young man, are you haunted by a fear of failure? Chained to a dull job with no future? When the door to opportunity swings open, and success awaits. Do you have a ghost of a chance? Well, don't despair. You're still young. There's still time. Time to escape from a dreary future. How? Choose your own job training in today's army and say goodbye to the evil eye. You can choose job training before you enlist. Sunday night, 8 p.m., Chum FM, Toronto. Show, The Fire Sign Theater. Ladies and gentlemen of the radio public, tonight, athletes in action, the heaviest show you'll ever see. A surreal stream of consciousness comedy radio show produced in Los Angeles that often made coded references to recreational drug use, usually marijuana. Memorable moment, the Canadian Department of Health was a key sponsor of the Firesign Theater show. So during commercial breaks, listeners were bombarded by endless rounds of anti-drug PSAs, like this weird contribution starring Indian classical musician Ravi Shankar. This is Ravi Shankar. As I travel around the world, I feel that the young people are searching for the means with which to attain peace, happiness, and spiritual awareness. Why not get high on life itself without using any drugs? You young ones 
You have the elixir of life. You don't need hard drugs to make your life more meaningful. In high school, I was a loner, a real Holden Caulfield. But I managed to avoid most of the humiliating pitfalls of adolescence with a rapier wit, all of it stolen from George Carlin, and because I was always wearing earphones. After graduation, I took the radio and television arts course at Ryerson University, where I excelled at reading weather reports on the student radio station CFRM. On sunny days, I would call for rain. On chilly days, I would call for warmth. I was a real barrel of stupid collegiate laughs. After my freshman year at Ryerson, I got lucky and landed a summer job as a boy Friday at a Toronto recording studio called Morgan Earl Sounds. I was the lowest rung on the ladder. My daily duties included vacuuming, picking up my boss's dry cleaning, cataloging tapes, and endlessly restocking mid-priced wine for our clientele of attractive ad agency creative department workers. These were the beautiful people, and now I was among them. Morgan Earl Sounds specialized in making two things, radio commercials and jingles. On any given day, I'd hear an amazing cortege of radio commercials with the voices of Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, Rick Moranis, and John Candy, none of whom were household names yet. Hey, come on. We're paying you to say Dorval Circle, huh? Harland Auto. As easy to get to as they are to talk to. Easy route number one. Take the Metropolitan to the Cote d'Alias exit and follow Cote d'Alias to the Winner's Circle. It's Harland Auto at the Dorval <clears throat> Circle. You want to get Excuse a right me. Towel? Or easy route number two. Take the Trans-Canada to Sources Boulevard. Go south on Sources to Highways 2 and 20, then west to the Winner's Circle. It's Dorval Circle. Can you say that? Move your mouth. Move your mouth. Dorval. Dorval. We're paying you the money. Come Once on, you're there, you're where you should be for the best in General Motors car sales and service. Harlan Auto has been there for years, and for years they've been the automatic choice. Thinking GM? Think Harlan. Look for them at the Winner's Circle. Are you having problems at home or something? You can't read the script? I mean, it's right there in front of you, Dorval. I've hey, had enough of you. What you get your Will hands you leave off me, me alone? Huh? Leave you alone? I'll leave you alone. Hey. As easy to get to as they are to talk to. Harland Auto at the Winner's Circle. Dorval! After two days on the job, I was shocked when one of the senior producers invited me into the studio to witness the production of a radio commercial. For listeners, who have never set foot in a recording studio, here's how it looks. The recording environment is comprised of two rooms, a studio and a control room. The studio is soundproofed and contains microphones and headphones for the performers. The control room has a variety of speakers, recording devices, and a mixing console, which allows you to edit and assemble the recorded material. There is also plush seating, that includes leather-bound sofas to catch the occasional spilled drink. In those days, the control room air was rich in the unmistakable aroma of Ampex 456 recording tape, a scent that recalls campfire smoke and styrofoam packing peanuts. 
There were ashtrays everywhere. And strewn around the room, like sleepy domestic house cats, were the coterie of writers, producers, and client representatives. Given the often experimental aesthetic of the time, and the success of Second City and Saturday Night Live, many commercial recording sessions relied not on scripts, but on the improvisational talent of the performers. I remember being at Morgan Earl one night and watching Second City record a commercial for an upcoming federal election. Here's an outtake from that session. What do you think we have to do to get people involved in politics? I say we could rent buses for them and force them to go to these meetings. I see. Well, what do you think we have to do to get people involved in politics? I think we should uh, send them more letters, uh, tell them what's happening, and uh, make them read them. Excuse me, what do you think we're going to have to do to get people involved in politics and good government? Well, I say if they don't go to the meetings, uh, tax them. Just tax them real heavy. Uh, hit them where it hurts, in the pocket. I see. Uh, I think political parties should be parties. I think that's what people are attracted to. They're attracted to fun. And you make politics fun, and you got a lot of people involved. One of the great things about working at Morgan Earl were the out-of-town guests. Henry Winkler, William Shatner, and Alice Cooper all stopped by for one reason or another. A familiar face at the studio was San Francisco-based radio writer, interviewer, and genius, Mal Sharp. Mal's specialty is the man-on-the-street radio commercial. I spent one day as a tape operator assisting Mal recording some commercials outside. He wore a trench coat and a stylish fedora. Mal is one of the most fascinating and charismatic men I have ever met. Of the many lessons Mal taught me that day, the most important lesson in fact was how to talk with complete strangers. Mal could talk to almost anyone because he knew the power of kindness. Well, this is uh, Mal Sharp along with Ernie Anderson. And of course, in the background, you hear the people of California chanting for Bell Brand to defeat the rival Chip. You can hear them as they sing, Belba Brand, Belba Brand, Belba Brand in the background. It's uh, ma'am, you're out here and you can hear these people. Do you think this is going to be good for sales? Well, it's a new thing. It's a new in thing. Do you understand what they're chanting? Well, uh, it doesn't sound like potato chips at all. What does it sound like? It sounds like an Indian chant. Yeah. I mean, it's incongruous. So, in summation, you think it's going to be a good year for Bell Brand potato chips as long as there's chanting? I don't think so. I think it's going to be a good year for Bell Brand, regardless of the chanting, because their product is so good. Fresh, crisp, and yummy. Oh, very. Now, what else do you want from me? <laughs> if it's Bell, it's swell. Did you notice the pint-sized musical flourish at the end of the Bell potato chip spot? It's called a tag. Tags belong to a musical genre that began as an experiment for a waning breakfast cereal in 1926. What began as an audio experiment for a waning breakfast cereal in 1926 would, over the next five decades, become a distinct musical form. It's called a jingle. Although I was exposed to thousands of jingles in my childhood, two of which you have already heard, who would have known there was a creative jingle explosion 
looming just around the corner. Jingles have been around since the beginning of radio, but in the 1970s, we hit peak jingle. But since they fell out of fashion so long ago, this may be a good time to review what actually makes a jingle a jingle. Jingles always have a catchy melody that's easy to sing. They must be earworms, burrowing their way in and staying there for days. Lyrically, some jingles try to create a vague atmosphere of desire in a listener's imagination. Other kinds of jingles play to the listener with more specific appeals, underlining the virtue of a product's price, speed, sexiness, or mouth-watering ingredients. Traditional jingles come with a chorus of singers who repeat a catchphrase or tagline near the end. But what a jingle really does is bind an emotion to a product or service. From the sunrise in the east to the sunset in the west, we're American Airlines, doing what we do, doing what we do best. By design, jingles bypass the analytical lobes in the brain and instead stimulate the nucleus accumbens or pleasure centers. Once you hear it, a jingle creates an itch that you can't stop scratching. Between 1970 and 1980, ad companies produced thousands of jingles, and for a good reason. Change was in the air. In the 1970s, a new generation of very sophisticated young jingle writers flooded the jingle jungle and couldn't help but write music that appealed to their generation. But none of this came as a big surprise to me, because in many ways, I was one of them. Growing up on a diet of Steely Dan and Joni Mitchell, how could I not have been? Take Dr. Pepper. The first time I heard Be a Pepper in 77, I had to pull over to the side of the road. Randy Newman and Jake Holmes wrote the jingle, which begins with a startling statement. I drink Dr. Pepper because I'm proud. I used to be alone in a crowd. What? Had Dr. Pepper bottled a cure for alienation? Let's take a sip and see. I drink Dr. Pepper and I'm proud I used to be alone in a crowd But now you look around these days There seems to be a Dr. Pepper craze I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper We're a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper If you drink Dr. Pepper, you're a pepper too Us peppers are an interesting breed an original taste is what we need. Ask any pepper and it'll say, Only Dr. Pepper tastes that way. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too?
For me, Be a Pepper was an awakening. Listeners were calling radio stations requesting to hear I'm a Pepper as though it were a hit song. The power of this fact wasn't lost on me. At 20 years old, I began writing, playing, or singing on jingles. Then I joined the Musicians' Union and the Voice Actors' Union. And reading my union newsletters, I discovered that Toronto was a hub of jingle innovation. But the real center of the jingle universe was, of course, New York City. And in 1984, I got an inner call from a mysterious voice. It wasn't God, but it said, Go to New York. New York is your destiny. Armed with nothing but my cadet blue valise, my guitar, and a list of contacts, I moved in to 213 West 71st Street on the Upper West Side, just in time for radio's second renaissance. But that's a story for part two. A 700-foot mountain of whipped cream was written and produced by Clive Desmond for The Organist from KCRW with executive producers Andrew Leland and Ross Simonini. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. The Third Coast team also includes Emily Kennedy and Rebecca Silverman. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough. <laughs>